0: Would you stand again for the the reverence of the reading of the Holy Word? Um, Today's scripture is from Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, everybody. Matt, I didn't check the level on this, so if it sounds too loud or too quiet, you can feel free to adjust. Um, Man, Jeremy, thanks for leading worship, man. Yeah. One one of the gifts of having so many... uh, worship leaders at our churches. I, I just love the variety of styles. I love having solo guitar or piano or in full bands. And one of the things that's cool about that is, you know, everyone has a, their subtle style and maybe, maybe the overarching blanket is kind of a, a folksy aesthetic here musically, um, which I love. Uh, some of you might not, and that's okay. Um, but within that, like, I think the diversity helps us all kind of not get used to one particular style or whatever it's it's hopefully we're all able to worship whether it was someone at an organ someone a cappella, no music at all we could just chant the psalms or something and wow. uh louise <laughs> could beatbox for us whatever it may be uh yeah all right so yeah i just i just love the, the subtle way that's i hope even on sunday's right oh that person's le- oh cameron's playing bass again great um you can grow beyond that into, we just are here to worship Jesus, and uh, whether we have music or not, or music that we are particularly, you know, we particularly have an affinity towards or not, um, that's secondary. It just so happens, uh, that was beautiful, Jeremy, thank you. I was kind of moved up there. Um, Well, enough about that. Uh, Let's get into the really uncomfortable business, which is, yes, that's right. If you were listening to the sermon, today a pastor is talking about politics. Nervous laughter all around. All around. Um, If you were nervous about that, it might be for good reason. It's usually uh, embarrassing at best or uh, harmful at worst. Uh, We'll see if I can avoid either of those two things. Um, I want to start with a quote. Tell me if you resonate with this. Begins here. Here's how these competing narratives usually play out. Those on the right side of the political spectrum say they stand for individual freedom, patriotism, and moral order. The left, on the other hand, claims to stand for justice, equality, and inclusion. Conservatives say progressives are immoral because of their positions on abortion, religious liberty, and the like. Progressives say conservatives are bigoted and lack compassion when it comes to poverty, race, and gender. Both sides have come less tolerant, have become less tolerant of differing viewpoints and often stamp out candidates and advocates who hold to more nuanced or moderate positions. Many Christians are conflicted because they believe in freedom, moral order, justice, equality and inclusion. We want to protect the unborn and treat the poor and racial minorities with love and compassion. We also see merit in the criticisms of each side. Yet because of how the issues are presented, Christians are told to either surrender their biblical convictions or neglect their Christ-like compassion. There's nothing wrong with being conflicted about how both options are right in part and wrong in part. The bigger problem is when Christians are unaware or unbothered by the faults on the side they prefer. This isn't to suggest a false equivalency between the two parties. One party might be more wrong on more issues at a given time, but we must realize that both fall well short of the biblical standard. Christians can choose a political party, but we can't choose between love and truth. Anybody feel that? Anybody resonate with that? That's from uh, Justin Gibney in his excellent book, Compassion and Conviction. It's one of the, might be the only one with a red spine over there on the, on the book, bookshelf. We did a, a church-wide book club with that book, gosh year ago? Year in, I don't remember now. It was a year or two ago. Uh, because we believe, we believe, at least I believe, I'll just speak for myself, in, in the vision that that group, the End Campaign, puts forward for kind of Christian public engagement. Not that it's all gospel truth, but if you're looking for kind of a deep dive into how do I reconcile this political mess that our country is in with my faith, that's a really good place to start. So that's just a, a plug. We have three copies over there. We've sold out of it a few times. If you... Uh, we sell out again, we get some more. That's Justin of The End Campaign, his book, Compassion and Conviction. And I think he's capturing, he's tying into something that I think most thoughtful Christians feel uh, whenever they think about. What does it mean to engage politically in this time, in this place, in our country with the options and choices that we have? How do we be faithful? How do we be faithful? That's what this sermon's about. So before we jump any further, um, I think we need to pray. For lots of reasons, but we just need to pray, so let's do it. Father, this, this time is for you. It's for you to speak, Lord. We believe, you. We believe this, this pretty wild thing, Lord, that, that you have spoken through these, these words on this page. You've spoken through your scriptures, Lord. You spoke, of course, through the incarnated Son of God, Jesus, who had this conversation with these people. And Lord, we believe that you are still speaking today to us. And so as we come under your word, we pray for uh, receptivity, for ears to hear, eyes to see, humility. Pray that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. We pray that we would be uh, comforted and encouraged where we need to be. And Father, as, a, as another pastor speaking about politics, I just, I, m- more than anything, I'm, I'm really not concerned with who I do or don't offend. I just want to speak your truth, Lord. And if anything I say is not of you, then just... Remove it. May, it. may it not be carried with any of us out of this place, Lord. You speak this morning. We beg you. We need that, Lord. It's too complicated otherwise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 13. Verse 13, let's put it up on the screen there. It says, they, who's they? They was the group of religious leaders, the chief priests, um, some Pharisees, some elders, some scribes, key representatives of kind of the temple leadership system that Jesus has suddenly like thrown down the gauntlet with as Josh mentioned last week, and, his way, and his, this holy week, this week in Jerusalem leading up to the crucifixion. They are now trying something else. They, they last week came to him with a question, by whose authority are you doing any of this, Jesus? Because you're doing some pretty wild things. Whose authority are you standing on And then Jesus kind of enigmatically answered their question. Now they're trying another tack. They send a different group to him. They send to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. We'll talk about who they are and why that's significant in a second. And they sent him once again to trap him in his talk. So this is the second of four questions that are come to Jesus early in Holy Week. And uh, the second one is perfectly designed, it tells us right there, to trap Jesus This isn't a sincere question about what do we do about this tax issue. This is designed to catch Jesus, to trap him, to give him an impossible question to answer. To understand why this is so difficult, we just have to do a quick bit of sort of first century background here about this tax. We talk about this a lot. But in the first century, the world that Jesus was incarnated into, was teaching into, uh, was a sad time for Israel. Israel was under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire, they were subject to it. And some Jews, some Jews got along just fine, they got along to get along, they found ways to benefit from sort of the, the benefits that came with being nested under the Roman Empire. But, but others, usually the more religiously serious Jews, they absolutely hated this arrangement. God was supposed to be their only ruler, and every time they had to pay any kind of homage to Caesar or to Rome, it was a slap in the face of some of their most deeply held views. New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado writes this, For these Jews, there was perhaps no aspect of Roman rule more objectionable than the annual tribute or poll tax that had to be paid in the emperor's silver coins on which there was his likeness in an inscription. I have a picture of it here. I saw you can buy these coins for like four euro, uh, that would have been cool, you should get a denarius. That's the first century Roman silver denarius that they were talking about here. On the front, uh, you can see the uh, underneath it has the letters and then it, we kind of fill in what each word represents, but the front says Tiberius Caesar, August son of the divine Augustus. And then the back says Pontifex Maximus, this is Latin, high priest, high priest. So this coin, this coin describes Tiberius Caesar as a semi-divine being. You see that? And the high priest. In other words, this is Hurtado again. In other words, the tribute was not only an economic burden they had to pay a day's wage. You know, it's not that much, but it's significant. That's about how much a, a, a denarius was worth. But more importantly, for many Jews to pay the tribute, or for some to even handle this money, to even touch it, was to consent to the blasphemous claims of the Roman Emperor that he was God. So some of the most devout Jews said, we're not even touching this coin because of what's printed on it, let alone paying this tax that he's asking us to do every year. In fact, when this was instituted uh, around AD 6, there was a failed Jewish revolt where, where many people rose up to try to overthrow Rome over how offensive this was to their sensibilities, and it was put down. Rome was still in place, and there was going to be another revolt over basically this issue in A.D. 66, years after, decades after Jesus was on the scene, that resulted in the temple being destroyed. So this was a hot, hot issue. This wasn't just like ah, I don't know, what, you know, what about? Yeah, I think when we think about taxes, we think. I don't know, it's annoying or whatever, and yes, this policy that No, this was cutting to the core of kind of Jewish identity under an oppressive empire. So, so just let that weigh on you as we discuss this. So the question that they're coming to Jesus with to trap him of whether or not to pay this tax with this coin was shorthand for this. Just how do you think we should respond to our Roman oppressors, Jesus. What should we do? Just how revolutionary are you, Jesus? We get the sense that you've got this revolutionary impulse. You're not, you're not just going along with whatever is happening, either in Israel or in Rome. Just how far does that go? Maybe you're more curious about that as you think about Jesus. So Jesus is left with a dilemma. It's a dilemma. Here, I, I didn't even read this. They, so they, they, they come to him, and here's what they say. Teacher. We know that you're true, and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God." So they're kind of buttering him up, probably meant to be kind of soft mockery of Jesus, maybe not so soft. Geez, we, we know that you're, you're not afraid to answer hard questions for fear of offending people, right? So, answer this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They're talking about this tax or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? Yes or no, Jesus? Yes or no? Roman taxes? Yes or no? Roman rule? Yes or no? Tell us now. That's the trap. That's the trap. Here's why it's so sticky. If he goes left, let's say, and says yes, just pay the tax. Kind of religiously compromise with Rome here. He's going to risk losing support of all the people who think he's the Messiah. You know, there was this group that was welcoming him in just two days before on the donkey, Palm Sunday, laying the cloaks on the ground, palm branches, saying, this is the son of David. Here he is. It's the king. He's going to do this. This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. So he's got this little movement building. If he says, yes, pay the tax, he will lose the support of all these people who view him as the Messiah. They think that will help them overthrow Rome. He will be seen as having less religious purity. He'll be compromised by supporting this Roman blasphemy. His influence will be stopped via just the loss of credibility amongst his followers. That's option A. If he goes right and says, no, don't pay it, stick it to Rome, the leaders then will have enough to charge him with sedition and have him arrested for being a threat to the social order. His influence will be stopped via jailing, possibly execution. Take your pick. Lose all credibility or be killed. What's it going to be, Jesus? Just how revolutionary are you? So no matter what he says, trouble's going to come for him. But notice who's asking the question as well. Here's another layer. The chief priests and scribes and elders had sent a mixed group of, here they are, the Pharisees and the Herodians. We have to note this, the Pharisees, we've talked about, we've met them a lot across this book. They were the experts in the law. This was a group, don't be too hard on them. They were a group that was going to try to usher in the Messiah's coming by calling Israel to deep faithfulness to the Torah. Guys, if we can just get really serious about the covenant, really obey, then maybe our woes will be over. Messiah will come, he'll rescue us. The curses will be over. That was their heart. Let's get serious about our covenant with God so our fortunes will change. On the other hand, the Herodians, these were irreligious Jews, mostly, who were content with the Herodian dynasty in Rome. So Rome had set up these puppet rulers of the Herod family at this time to kind of oversee. And they basically represented like fake Judaism, Roman puppets, if that makes sense. So the Herodians were like, we like Herod, he's good for us. He, you know, they just kind of went along to get along. They're happy with the arrangement, they benefited from it, they supported the Herods. Now, if you don't immediately see it, that's like the people who are like, we need religious purity conspiring with the people who are like, we don't care about religious purity, let's just, you know, get on board here, get, go along to get along. This would be like the head of the Republican National Committee and the head of the Democratic National Committee working together. Can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine such a thing? Here's the point of this, I think a hatred of the real Jesus brought the Herodians and the Pharisees together. And sometimes I wonder if it will bring our nation's political enemies together one day. Jesus has a way of, 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 of taking natural enemies and uniting them against him. Sure, I hate the Pharisees. Sure, I hate the Herodians. But we hate Jesus even more. So we'll, we'll, we'll form this alliance of convenience against him. If that was true, then it's true today. When Jesus refuses to neatly fall into the world's categories, the world will make him an enemy of all. Friends, I just say this pastorally. This is a space we have to increasingly become comfortable living in as Jesus' is hands and feet in this world if we're going to follow him with integrity. Are you ready to be hated by the Herodians and the Pharisees? I don't know if I am. I want to be. That's what I'm called to be. That's what you're called to be. Let's count the cost right now. So to summarize, Jesus is being weighed, asked to weigh in on a heated political issue of his day, very heated, um, to either accept, if we use kind of a heuristic from our day, either what the left says or what the right says, and either way is gonna threaten his ministry in some way. Their question is designed to undermine his support amongst one group or the other, but their empty, I want you to hear this, their empty words about Jesus are actually true because they're getting at something here. To to answer this one way or the other is to basically say, I'm not afraid of what consequences might come for me. And all this stuff that they disingenuously say is true. He does not care about anyone's opinion. He is not swayed by appearances. He truly does teach the way of God, whatever the cost. They are right. Jesus isn't fundamentally interested in gaining support amongst either of their pre-existent conditions or categories. On this issue, Jesus is, we're gonna see, he's off the political map and he does not care who it frustrates. He is not going to let them set the terms of the debate. Here's a principle here. Jesus doesn't go where people and their ideologies and expectations are. He's inviting people to come where he is. Do you believe that? So let's see how he answers. Verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, he knows what's going on. Jesus knows what's going on. It's probably obvious to all. He said to them, Why put me to the test? He knows exactly what's going on. He says, All right, bring me a denarius coin we just looked at. Let me look at it. And they brought one, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? You all know the answer Caesar's. It's Tiberius's. And that's what they said to him. It's Caesar's. We'll pause there. So Jesus knew their hypocrisy, and he was about to reveal it in part. Listen to this. Jesus is actually, they're actually trying to do a gotcha with Jesus here, I think. They're, they're, they're wanting him to say, first of all, hey, Jesus, we bet you're carrying one of these coins around. Pull it out of your cloak. And Jesus is like, I don't carry that coin. Do you guys have one? Well, yeah, I, yeah, I guess we do. So that, that's amazing, first of all. He already diffused some of their gotcha. He's like, he already wasn't carrying the idolatrous coin. I'm not saying that Jesus would never have this coin on him, or I'm not even saying that Jesus wouldn't necessarily pay this tax. But in this moment, he's like, I don't carry those things around. You guys have one? Indeed they do. Though they're so offended that he might. So that's issue one here. But, but here's the main point. The main point that Jesus raises here has to do with whose likeness is on the coin. The Greek word here that Jesus uses for likeness is icon or icon in Greek, which we also translate image. Jesus asking, whose image is the coin made in? Whose inscription denotes who owns it? Basically, who's the true owner of the coin? Pause. Does that remind you of anything? Whose image? If you're a student of the Bible and a a Marvel fan, your spidey sense should be tingling right now. The same Greek word, icon, is is the word found in the Greek translation of Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our icon, our icon, our image, after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image, icon, of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in this illustration, in in this question, he's just asked a question so far. Whose image and inscription is, in, is this coin in. He's establishing an implicit, explicit idea and an implicit one. Explicitly, they say, every one of these coins carries Caesar Im- Caesar's image. and in, in the Roman world, it was literally thought that he owned the coins, even as they were being used for commerce. It's like, they're my coins, and I'll call them back anytime I want. So that's explicitly stated. What's implicitly stated, for anyone who knows their Bible, is that though every one of these coins carries Caesar's image, every one of these people carries God's image. And they belong to him. That's what he's saying. We, move, we read on, verse 17. The principle he draws from this. So Jesus said to them, Render, give, pay back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's and they marveled at him. I found myself marveling at him as I've been studying this passage. What a response. Again, all these coins have Caesar's image and inscription on them. There is a measure of authority that Caesar has over this Roman money. So give to Caesar what he's owed. I think this text indicates there is a place for being a good citizen of the nation you find yourself in. Jesus implicitly rejects a call to violent revolution here that that many would have wanted him to make. But what he says next is far more revolutionary at a deeper level than what any sword or gun or bomb could enact. Listen to this. He says, yeah, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. It's, it's, It's almost dismissive. It's like, yeah, playing around with this stuff, a coin. Sure, fine, give it to him. Give it to him. But all people have God's image and inscription on them, which means God has absolute authority over people at their deepest level. You might not like the sound of that. That's merely what the scriptures claim. That's what Jesus is claiming here people may owe Caesar his tax for whatever short time he's in power or however long his empire stands. And at this time, the Roman Empire had been around for a long time, and it was inconceivable that it would ever end. That's why we, you, you write about the fall of Rome. as such a dramatic moment in history. But every human empire ends. And Jesus is like, sure, give him this coin. It's fine. Give him this coin. As long as he's around, sure, give him his little thing that he wants or whatever. But they owe God their everything. Render to Caesar his stuff, but give to God the things that God rightfully owns, which is everything under heaven and earth. God's reign, friends, will never end. This firmly, firmly situates our relationship to earthly kingdoms, and our vision for politics firmly and unmistakably underneath, underneath, totally subject to our discipleship to Jesus. There's no competition here between the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's in terms of importance, no competition whatsoever. An inconceivable chasm there. So in the absence, I, I would say this, tell me if you, tell me if you agree. In the absence of, of religion, as religion is kind of declining, at least, at least in sort of Western culture at large, numerically, statistically, I, I, it really seems to me that, p- that politics is kind of filling the vacuum to, to sort of fill a religion-like role in many people's lives. It's the thing where mission gets funneled. It's the thing where money gets funneled. It's the thing where passion gets funneled. It's the thing where moral purity gets defined. It's a thing that gives life meaning. It creates good guys and bad guys, heroes and villains. You see that? Even for Christians, there's, there's a temptation to make earthly politics ultimate. And, and whether that's you, at times that's me, this passage is a prophetic word to us. This passage is a prophetic word to us. To, let, to render to God the things that belong to to God, to not fall into that game. In fact, it seems that the spiritual powers that are opposed to God and His rule are highly invested in dividing the people of God, in squandering the reconciling, unifying, peace bringing work of Jesus between every socio political barrier. The way our politics in the U.S., I don't know much about, the, about world politics, I'll just speak about our country. The way the parties and the issues are carved up amongst, it almost seems satanically devised to divide Christians. So, what this means is that we will have disagreements amongst faithful, thoughtful, conscientious disciples of Jesus about what political decisions to make. And the truthfully, this is one way the church can look decidedly unlike the world in a beautiful way. That this isn't a place, this isn't a room, this isn't a community where politics are fundamentally what divides us and separates us, and creates our evils and our goods note the power we talked about we talk about this a lot I feel like it comes up the power of Jesus including in his twelve the twelve disciples the innermost core of his community that, that were with him for three years he includes Matthew the tax collector this is like that Herodian Pharisee thing Matthew the tax collector whose job prior to associating with Jesus was collecting taxes on behalf of Rome and probably cheating people cheating his fellow countrymen the Jews in the process he also brought into the 12, Simon the Zealot, which was, a, was for someone who wanted violent revolution to overthrow Rome out of religious purity. And I suspect both of those men dramatically had to conform and change and like come under the rule of Jesus. Of course, they didn't remain who they were before. But nonetheless, can you imagine those like team meetings <laughs> early on, especially Simon, Matthew, shut up. Can't have any more of that. Yes, yes, we know. I think it's really significant. That's who Jesus includes in His 12. Again, that's not excusing either their views where they were contradictory to God and there were many places where they were, but it's just saying, this is what the gospel does. This is what Jesus does. He takes natural enemies and through the power of the spirit makes them family, makes them family. So we see it there, see it in the life of Jesus, who he includes. I would just say this, we've been through a wild political couple of years as a church. And I know one of the things, because I just felt it felt so fraught and so tense was like early COVID months, you know, when we were trying to make a decision about as a church, like, what are we going to do? Every church had to make a decision or, you know, the, the, the local authorities are telling us not to meet. Should we do that? Should we push back? Is this one of those cases where we're like, we need to stand up and, and meet? Should we not? Should we, how do we sort all that out? And I won't rehash every decision we made or why we did, but I remember, I remember when we made the decision not to meet in the building for large gatherings for a time. Some of, some of you guys were really mad, really mad. And I'm not telling the story to say that was lame of you. What I'm saying is some of you were really mad, and we talked, and with a couple of you, we, we prayed, and we debated, well, have you thought about this side? Have you thought about this side? And, and then some of you said, okay, the gospel is being preached here, okay, <laughs> and you're still here, and you're still here. And I, I raise that to say I view that as a, as a picture of deep spiritual maturity in these things. Not because I was right necessarily, me or the elders, maybe we got it wrong, I don't know. It's very complicated. But I merely say, regardless of the issues themselves, you said, I'm not gonna make this a a gospel issue. And I'm gonna commit to this community and you're leading and you're serving and you're a blessing to this community. And I hope I would have that maturity if our roles were reversed. So thank you. There's something really beautiful in that. In his book, Befriend, Presbyterian pastor Scott Sauls writes this, he says, if I feel more of a kindred solidarity With those who share my politics but not my faith, then I feel with those who share my faith but not my politics, what does it say about me? It suggests that I have sold out to Rome. I have rendered to God what belongs to Caesar and to Caesar what belongs to God. So, Jesus' principle here, I think he's saying, sure, pay your taxes, but your fundamental allegiance must be to God The God in whom you live, and you move, and you have your being. Our final allegiance and responsibility is to God and His kingdom. That is our primary citizenship, regardless of where we live on this planet. To forget this is political idolatry. To forget this is political idolatry. That ordering of things. On the flip side, to boldly live into it is revealing, and it's inspiring. I think of the stories in Acts or the early chapters of Acts of Peter and John facing persecution. They're told to shut up, stop talking about Jesus, Acts 4, 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them: whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. You judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Acts 5:29. Acts 5:29. But Peter and the apostles answered. We must obey God rather than men. Just reading those stories gives me this like jolt of fear and energy and hope. It's inspiring and it it illuminates, it illuminates the folly of what's on the other side. There's this amazing film if you haven't seen it. One of my favorite filmmakers is a guy named Terrence Malick. Has anyone seen the movie A Hidden Life? I see one, I see one. Wasn't Sam in here? Sam and I watched that together. He's number two. Sam's number two. He's downstairs. Um, Terrence Malick is a, a deeply interesting, some would say boring, but uh, spiritual, spiritually-minded filmmaker. He made this film called Hidden Life that's based on a true story. Uh, his movies are so poetic, though, that even when he's doing history, it's very hard to imagine. Like, it, it, it follows genuine history super closely. But it's the story of this man named Franz Jägerstatter uh, who was a farmer in Austria who was drafted into the Third Reich to fight for the Nazis in World War II. And the whole movie is this push and pull between is he just going to do it? He's a Christian. He's a Christian. And is he just going to do it, go along to get along, which is what every single person in his village encourages him to do, or is he going to stand up and do the right thing? And as he begins to make choices, there's always that, this is always the temptation so many people say just just sign the paper just say the words you know in your heart that you won't you don't really mean it but you'll think about how much suffering you'll you'll save your family from or whatever it doesn't mean anything just just do it just do this just go be a just go be a, a medic or whatever in in the in the army and the story is just the, the agonizing journey of him sticking to his faithfulness in God. And so much of the film is like these over, overdubs of just his prayer life and reciting the Psalms and pleading with God, and not at times he doesn't know what to do and he's begging for direction. And the film though just ends up being like, his life just became this monument. This monument to the goodness of God, the truth of God, the justice of God, and it, in contrast, it just exposed the cruelty and the corruption. Of what was happening in Nazi Germany. Rendering to God the things that are God's has a powerful, powerful effect in this world, friends. It really does. To boldly live into this is revealing and it's inspiring. And I'm just going to say this. I'm going to tell you this. It is, it is my deep conviction. This is just me speaking personally. It is not the purpose of this pulpit to tell you how to vote. Um, You're never going to get a voter's guide from Door of Hope Northeast. But you will hear every week what Jesus demands of his followers, what's on his heart, what is his agenda, how we can actually follow after him. And what I want to do is to push on you not to play the world's games of easy partisanship, of compromising your faith convictions for your chosen political team, of getting comfortable demonizing the other side of the aisle. However you vote, and maybe there's some personal bias in here, so judge it against the scriptures, but I actually want you to feel at least a meaningful measure of political homelessness in this world. Um, Both parties claim to be the Jesus party, and they aren't. They, They aren't. I think one of the most important things that Jesus models for us in this story is how to transcend the categories and options that the world sets before us politically. Jesus neither has to fully embrace the revolutionary mindset, full stop, or wholly embrace the Roman occupation. This isn't to say that the right thing politically is always the. Mi- Sometimes you hear that it's like there's something on the left, something on the right. The right thing must always be in the middle, kind of splitting the difference. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Sometimes on certain issues, one side is clearly better, wiser, more truthful, more just than the other. I'm just saying it's very unlikely that either of our two political parties' visions on a given issue are perfectly in line with Jesus. The system almost won't allow them to be. It's certainly not the case that either party has a 100% track record. So, if you choose to participate in our democracy and vote, which I'm not even assuming that... And if you choose to, my my pleading with you as your pastor is pursue truth and beauty and goodness and wisdom and justice as Jesus defines them. And when faithfulness requires that you upset your progressive friends, and when it requires that you upset your conservative friends, and by the way, just would say in, in Portland, it will likely be more emotionally and relationally difficult to upset your progressive friends for, by virtue of where we live and the air that we breathe. But w- whatever the case, be okay with it. Upset people. Because you're rendering to God what's God's. Because Jesus is your king. Because Jesus is your king. Hear this, let our politicians disqualify themselves from your support. Hold them to higher standards. Hold yourself to higher standards. Don't accept their terms, receive Jesus' terms. You know, Jesus modeled this perfectly (laughs) in his final obedience to God to purchase our salvation. I think of the image of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're gonna read it in Mark here in a couple months. But Jesus, when he begs with the Father to spare him the cross. And this is enigmatic because as we know, Jesus is God. He's the eternal Son of God. But he says, not my will done, but yours. He humbles himself to the Father's plans. He laid down, in some sense, or I would qualify this, of course, but in some sense, he laid down his agenda in that moment for the Father's agenda. And it led to his death, his execution. Jesus' answer here, it doesn't satisfy his critics. It's part of still what leads him to the cross. Jesus is more than happy to become the enemy of everyone if it means standing with God. And by virtue of his faithfulness in these things, we get to be saved, friends. Though though I compromise all the time, I'm motivated by fear, I'm motivated by looking like I've got the right and cool and acceptable opinions uh, as much as anybody else. Jesus was never like that. Jesus stood stood firmly in truth, whatever the cost. And the result is that he died for our sin and offered us the forgiveness that we so desperately need, offers us the righteousness that we could never attain on our own. And he does it as a free gift to any who would believe, even to these people, you know, the Romans nailing him to the cross. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. That's the Jesus that we serve. And because he's like this, we can be saved. If you've been saved, it's because he's like this. If you haven't been saved, come to him today. He is good. He is good. That's our Jesus. So a few final points of application. We're almost done. I would say this. I think this text indicates that Christianity affirms at least a place for sinful human government. I think this passage tells us Christians are not to be violent revolutionaries, this and other passages. I think this tells us Christians are to pay their taxes. I think this passage tells us that, well, by implication, in connection to other passages, we're we're meant to pray for our civic leaders, for their good, for their wisdom. No matter how despicable you find them, one way or the other, you pray for them. You want their good, that they'd make wise decisions that the places we live might flourish and be ruled in justice and peace and goodness in align with the visions visions and values of Jesus. So Christianity affirms a place for sinful human government even, but we have to say this too. Representative government, like what we have here in the US, this provides a whole set of questions that the Bible does not directly answer about what faithfulness looks like. You know that. We live in a unique time that these first century authors knew nothing about where you get a vote, where you have constitutionally protected free speech. It was just like, I better obey the law or Caesar will have me killed. You know, there wasn't like protesting and, and, you know, movements, and we have a voice and we can use that voice, and we could use that voice either for evil or for good, which I count as a blessing. But all these questions, should I participate in this system? If so, how? Wow, these issues I really care about are carved up amongst a number of parties. Should I take the lesser of two? You know, all of these questions that I think are fascinating, important. I would love to go get coffee and talk about this and just process. How are you processing these things? How am I processing these things? So let's do it. Or do it amongst yourself, whatever. These are conversations we need to be having. My point right now is just, we live in a political environment that the New Testament, or certainly the Old Testament, knew nothing about. So let's have grace for one another as we're trying to make these choices. And may we lean into these responsibilities which are pretty novel in human history and may not be around that much longer. They may not be. We're not guaranteed representative government, but may we, as long as we have this system, may we take the responsibility with great discernment and with great care and with great humility, amen? More than anything, what this text is here Hope it's clear. This is a challenge to smash your political idols. Smash them. Whether they're on the right, whether they're on the left, whether they're in the middle, anything that is challenging you for your allegiance over against Jesus, smash it, kill it, put it down. Jesus is our king. If he is your king, I should say. I'm going to assume that about everyone in the room, but if Jesus is your king, then he's your king. We all bear his image. There are categories and traps and moves, and you should do this or you should say that all over the place. The question is not, is Jesus with you? The question is, are you with Jesus? Are you with him? Will you go where he goes? Even if it creates natural enemies out of everybody else against you because you are with the king. Behold, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world, he says. If they hated me, they will hate you, he says. Jesus, give us the boldness to walk faithfully in this moment, whatever it looks like, in Portland in 2022. Amen? Oh, may it be so.